It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you like it. Today, I have a conversation with Kara Kennedy, a staff writer at The Spectator World. You can follow her on Twitter at Kara Alice Kennedy. She has written a new piece, which has gone pretty viral, about the way that Meghan Markle lost uh, her standing within the Hollywood environment after she and Prince Harry uh, moved to L.A. Obviously, this is more of a gossipy topic than you normally get into on this podcast, but it is something that has obviously fascinated people uh, across uh, the country and certainly within the context of the Queen's recent death. It's something that has attracted a lot more attention, especially considering that Harry's tell-all book is planned to come out uh, within the coming months. This is something that obviously, you know, a lot of people have uh, different polarized opinions about. Kara Kennedy gives her perspective on what's really going on in terms of uh, the relationship between Harry, Meghan, and the royal family, uh, and the different uh, divides that exist there. Kara Kennedy, coming up next. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Kara Kennedy, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to chat with you about uh, your piece uh, for uh, the Spectator World on Meghan Markle, uh, which uh, had the um, the resonance and uh, and of course respectability to be uh, tweeted out to all of his followers by Perez Hilton. Um, and that's always, of course, a sign of, of seriousness and uh, something that ought to be uh, respected when it comes to uh, a, a Hollywood and celebrity-focused piece. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you approached uh, writing about Megan's relationship with Hollywood. Uh, well, I think um, the thesis of my piece was really kind of focused on the celebrity side. I think I used to be a royal correspond uh, royal reporter and I think that um, with the Meghan and Harry story everybody knows what every royal reporter has to say about everything but I, what I really wanted to look at was the celebrity side which at the time of writing it I didn't I don't think had been done at all or not covered in the kind of um, in the way that I wanted to do it uh, it was kind of bad timing because from writing it to publishing it um, so much stuff happened, like a ridiculous amount of stuff. So when it went out, I was kind of worried that, oh, this kind of looks like it's been done months ago and, and left. But that was just kind of the period that happened between it was a crazy, um, 
uh, a crazy time in the news cycle, I think. But um, yeah, it was just to look at the fact that everybody knew how Meghan and Harry lost the the British public in terms of royalty. But what I wanted to look at was how they had lost Hollywood in terms of being a celebrity. And um, yeah, I just I just don't think it was covered. So that's what I wanted to look into. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of the the relationship that is going on there, one of the things that I heard uh, during the coverage of uh, the Queen's uh, of the aftermath of the Queen's passing uh, was that uh, far too much of the American uh, media was focused on the Harry and Meghan subplot. Um, is that is that something that you agree with? I think that's true, but I think that it's kind of inevitable um, because the the Queen's death was so sudden. I mean, it just so happens that Meghan and Harry were actually in London, which is a miracle, really, um, because they they hadn't been here together for years. And the kind of um, lead up to the announcement of um, the Queen's death, there was so much kind of uh, tumultuous events with Harry and Meghan, but I think it's kind of inevitable that they were dragged into it. Um, Harry was, by all accounts, the last to find out. He was the only one that was travelling to Balmoral that didn't get there in time. Uh, So I think... um, yeah, it's inevitable that the American media picked up on that because Harry and Meghan have felt wronged by the royal family and I think this is going to be another element that they feel wronged for. So uh, I want to talk about some of the uh, developments in uh, the recent days. You talk about so much <laughs> having happened, but you know, one of the things that I think was very front of mind uh, for uh, people coming out of this was what was going to happen with uh, Harry's tell-all book. And yeah. you know what has been reported, of course, is that uh, they're going. Not only are they not going to hold back, but that they're going to proceed and that they're going to leave everything in there. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and what's going on with with the book situation. What people are anticipating. Well, I've kind of heard two sides. I don't know what you've heard, but I've heard that um, at first Harry was very much going to go ahead with it and it was not going to be edited at all and then in recent days I've heard more that he is going to pull back and kind of make it less explosive but I don't really think it matters anymore I mean the one of the things that came from the Queen's death is that it kind of doesn't matter what's happened and what what's going to happen the focus is on the fact that in the lead up to the Queen's death Meghan and Harry whether they meant to or not, caused her a massive headache and loads of drama. And that is what people are going to remember moving forward. I don't think it matters now whether they were going to kind of concede and say, oh, maybe we do want to come back because there was all that talk about um, whether they were going to try and... uh, because they had kind of lost Hollywood, which is what I focus on in my piece, and whether they were going to try their hand at kind of coming back. It's kind of been taken away from them now. Um, it doesn't matter. Prince Charles is very, 
is very set in his mind that um, he wants a slimmed-down monarchy. He's always been a big advocate for a slimmed-down monarchy. Um, he kind of wants to follow the European style of monarchy where uh, you don't have all of these people doing not very much. He wants it to be slimlined. He wants everybody that's uh, a working royal to kind of earn their, earn their wage. And it doesn't matter now what kind of uh, feelings and um, decisions that Meghan and Harry were making in the lead-up to the Queen's death. It's it's completely out of their hands now, which is why I think it like it, it just doesn't matter about his, his memoir, whether it's kind of uh, the towel that he was going to make it or whether he's going to um, scale it back. There's no place for him here. There's no place for her, especially, uh, and and that was kind of cemented with the Queen's death. But I think what's more interesting now is not Harry's memoir, but in the past week there's been two memoirs, uh, two books by really reputable royal reporters in the UK with really damning allegations. One is by Valentine Lowe from the Times, and it's called Courtiers. One is by Katie Nicholl, who is the Vanity Fair Royal Correspondent called The New Royals. And I don't know if Meghan thought that this bullying uh, story was going to go away, but it seems that more than anything that it's come back with a vengeance. The, uh, just in terms of, you've anticipated some of my next questions, but the comment uh, from Charles uh, about uh, th- uh, them uh, wishing them the best or whatever about them starting their new life in America. I think a lot of people interpreted that over here as being like, well, that's the brush off. That's the, yeah. there's no way of coming back. Is that yeah. how it was seen over there as well? Yeah, 100%. I mean, Charles, like I said, has always been the biggest advocate for a slim down monarchy. Uh, I think the Queen was a bit more passive in the fact that she really loved her grandson and didn't kind of want it to be the royal family to be broken up in this way but I think Charles is very much more of a straight kind of cutting edge guy and if Harry and Meghan want to do their own thing then that's fine but there is no place for them anymore and yeah I think in Charles's um, first speech as king when he did make that comment saying I wish them all the best some people saw it as um, as a oh well he's still being really nice about them but I think everybody with any kind of royal knowledge knew that that was Charles saying, this is it, you're done, mm-hmm. um, and this is kind of the, the, the segregation now. So your piece obviously focuses on the breakdown of their relationship uh, with Hollywood. Um, tell us a little bit about what kind of Megan's ambitions were, what she was trying to achieve there. Um, and what really soured Hollywood on on her and on them uh, in terms of what they actually delivered? Well, I think it's the it's the kind of entitlement in a way that they thought that they could be royals and they thought that they could be celebrity. And I don't know, maybe in the US it's different, but here being a royal is there's no glamour in it day to day it's like I wrote in the piece it's shaking hands with nurses and going to primary schools to listen to kids sing songs there is no glamour in it at all it's um it's a slog uh the queen herself worked like a dog uh princess Anne is known as one of the hardest working royals there's, there's no glamour in it at all and I think Meghan expected something very different I mean uh the book courtiers that is 
going to be released early next month, makes a really damning allegation against the Duchess that she said, I can't believe I'm not getting paid for this. And um, maybe it's salacious gossip, I don't know, but Valentin has um, reported it and he's a, like I said, he's a really reputable journalist. So I think that kind of sums it up. She thought that she was going to get the best of both worlds. She thought that she was going to be able to kind of captivate the British public. But, and, and she did at the beginning. I think that's really important to say. Uh, I went back through the archives to do this piece um, and everybody loved Meghan. Everybody in the UK loved her. They thought that she was going to be a real breath of fresh air, uh, she was going to come in and, and the, the, I mean, the monarchy is kind of old fashioned and um, mm. in some ways it probably should be modernised. And I think people people thought that she was going to be the driving force behind that. But unfortunately, she didn't, she wasn't willing to play the game, which is we get a few pictures of Archie, we get um, some interviews, you shake people's hands. And then in return, you get favourable coverage in the press um, and the British people love you. We, we curtsy to you. That, that's, that's what the, the kind of um, the game is, right? And she just wasn't willing to do it. And that's fine. But you can't go to the US then and expect to be held in such high regard. Um, in the piece I wrote, the... Perez said to me, these aren't uh, our royals, we don't bow to them, we have no reverence for them, we, we don't curtsy to them. And I think that kind of sums it up, right? The, our royals, Americans, don't see royalty in the same way as we do, but they wanted the best of both. They wanted to go there and they wanted to, to be these um, amazing people that were put on every list and walked every red carpet. And I think when they realised that that wasn't happening, they kind of cut their nose off to spite their face. What's your impression of the level to which uh, Harry is uh, complicit in this uh, to uh, or or is he just kind of being led around as the suggestion uh, always recurs? I think oh, there's so there's so much polarization with this argument that if you say one thing, it automatically means that you're if you have any criticism for Meghan or Harry, it automatically means that you're a racist and you hate women. And, and it's just such kind of a reductive, ridiculous argument. And you should be able to criticise people. I don't know what it is with Harry. I mean, throughout the years, people have always said that he's not very intelligent, which I don't know if that's kind of a fair argument. But maybe it's the case that, you know, all of the kind of... Um, underpinnings were there. He hated the press from what happened to his mother. He he was always kind of a modern driving force in the royal family. He always kind of hated the stuffiness of it. And he always said that very publicly. So I think this amazing, intelligent, beautiful woman has come along and said, oh, follow me. And that's probably what happened. He has got caught up in it all. I think there's been points where he has kind of regretted his decision. Um, I think the, the the thing about the Queen's death is that it, what it showed is that Harry makes decisions within 10 seconds and doesn't really think about anything. So when mm. they went to Balmoral um, and Meghan was told that she wasn't welcome to go there, they all had a family dinner and Harry didn't go. 
he was the first, he was the latest to get there and the first to leave in the morning. So I think that shows that he's kind of uh, hot tempered. He doesn't really think things through, and I think that's probably a massive driving force. I've always said that Harry, it's very likely that he kind of made this snap decision to leave the royal family, to leave the the only thing he's ever known, and then whether he's regretted or not, he's dug his heels in, and mm-hmm. he will kind of never admit defeat. And I think it's probably that. You know, I uh, have heard. Uh, that the there was some attempt and, and read a little bit that there was some attempt at some kind of peacemaking uh, between uh, uh, them uh, and that, that there was something about Harry wanting a mediator to be there or something very yeah. LA. Is this something that uh, is uh, is is true? Have you heard this? Uh, what what's the deal with it? Yes. Yeah, so um, so the mediator stuff was um, during the time where they decided that they were going to leave the royal family and they announced it um, and there were kind of blurred lines on whether they had told the Queen or they had not told the Queen and basically um, the story is that Harry was really upset that the courtiers who are the royal household kind of took charge and um, he thought it was just going to be a conversation with his grandmother but that's not how the royal institution works. So uh, the courtiers were brought in and, and they were... What um, what was reported that it, the Queen had scheduling issues, so um, we don't know whether that's true. Harry thought that it wasn't true and Harry thought that the Queen was trying to kind of, like, avoid the situation. So he said to his father, I want to bring a mediator in. And I read that Camilla, now the Queen, uh, Queen Consort, just laughed and said well, that's totally ridiculous. We deal with things privately in this family. And there's a reason for that. There's precedent for the royal family um, kind of sorting out family issues as privately as they can because we've seen what happens when stuff um, gets gets leaked and what's, what stuff goes out in the press. So, yeah, I think Harry probably did really want to kind of sort it, but in this kind of Americanized way, which is not how the British royal family will deal with anything. I mean... Can you imagine a, a mediator sat in a room with the Queen and Harry and Meghan? Like, it's just kind of ridiculous. It seems very, it seems very L.A. Yeah, like. and <laughs> yeah, and I just think that although he feels like he's kind of modernising and stuff, I mean, there's some things that you probably just can't ask. I, I, I think it's kind of a stretch to think that you're going to get some shrink into a room with the Queen and... And now Charles, who's the king, and Camilla and Meghan. And, like, it's just kind of ridiculous. How does this make you feel? Like, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so the, uh, yeah. the, the, there was an interesting thing that happened uh, a couple months back. I was at a rodeo in, uh, in Dallas, and uh, a pretty big one. And the, uh, Harry was there. Uh, and... Yeah. That struck me as, I mean, it got a little bit of coverage and that kind of thing, but it struck me as odd that he was there. I don't really know why he was there, uh, but it also uh, was kind of interesting because nobody in Dallas, you know, at a rodeo cares about Prince Harry. Like, I mean, they don't, you know, that's like, the, I mean, they would be more excited about, you know, the the, the Dallas housewives being there than, than yeah. Prince Harry. And so um, it's one of the things where, like, why why does he do things like that? Is it just kind of, 
wanting to become more Americanized or is there some other explanation for it? I think he thinks that what, what I try and talk about in the piece is how there's a massive difference between celebrity and royalty because royalty, like them or not, it's a lifelong kind of reverence. It's a lifelong name recognition, lifelong notoriety in a different way that celebrity is. I mean, they went to LA, they had a few front pages and then everything kind of subsided. They were getting um, invited to loads of different parties and then after a few weeks, of course it subsided. I mean, you're only as, as, as popular as the next front page, right? And then it kind of it moves on to something else. And I don't think that they were, were prepared for that at all um, because... The UK is a country that is so obsessed with royals. There's always something in every paper every week about them. And as much as Harry and Meghan supposedly want privacy and want this quiet life, they don't, and, and they can't afford to live without it. Um, the, the reason that they're doing these Netflix and Spotify things is, is for money. Entertainment uh, business pays in... in uh, Hollywood and, and that's kind of all they have now so I think that yeah they're turning up to these kind of trivial things that you wouldn't expect them to turn up to and I don't think it's because Harry really enjoys the rodeo I think it's because he's trying to get some kind of coverage from something I, that shows from when I mean they moved to LA for a quieter life and then they've got a camera crew with them at every turn uh, it, that's, that's, that's not a, um, an accident it's, it's what, they've, what they've planned on so uh, one question I have about this is that, you know, you you have these massive investments from uh, major corporations into uh, into them, you know, including, you know, from Spotify and the like. Uh, what happens if the audience isn't there or if the audience doesn't last? Obviously, you know, her initial podcast kind of soared to the top of the charts uh, out of, uh, you know, interest and curiosity and things like that. But I'm not sure that that has real staying power in the long term. I think that, you know, that's something that's still kind of an open question. If the audience starts to shrink, do you think that these places that have invested so much in uh, in them as being uh, a sort of interesting property, do you think they'll reconsider that investment? So I think originally when they first got these multi-million pound deals, Spotify, Netflix mainly, um, that they were obviously big names, they had just kind of shaken up an institution that has spanned 47 generations and kind of said, we're out. Um, and that's what originally drew them. But I was speaking to somebody about this the other day, it's interesting, because Harry, it's like Harry's memoir. Um, nobody wants to read it, but everybody will buy it, and I think that's the same as Megan's Archetype podcast. I mean, it's shot to the top. Um, beating Joe Rogan and like let's be honest it's it's not very interesting and it's kind of complete crap but everybody will listen to it because um, journalists will listen to it because it's their kind of job uh, and like as soon as it came out I listened to the whole thing and it's not because I enjoyed it but I think they'll have enough of a kind of cult following um, the kind of Sussex squad cult following and interest in these certain things. I mean, uh, I can't remember what the um, the Netflix series, the kind of, was it like a children's program that Megan was doing that got cancelled? I think yeah. stuff like that doesn't have the stay in power because it's crap. But mm -hmm. I think that the kind of interesting thing about their lives, like 
Harry's memoir and they'd kind of tipped to do a um, a kind of reality TV uh, documentary on Netflix. I think that will, will do incredibly well because people are so interested in them. We're, we're, it's such a polarised argument that people either kind of love them or hate them. There's not many people in the middle. And mm -hmm. I think that either of those sides will watch this stuff, they'll buy this stuff. Harry's memoir will make him millions because everybody will want to read it, even if they don't agree with anything he does. Well, I uh, wish you luck in terms of unpacking all of the different content that they produce in the in the, in the coming months, uh, because I'm sure there will be plenty, plenty more to talk about. Uh, Kara, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I wanted to give you just a brief reaction to uh, something that you've probably been seeing in the news today regarding the elections in Italy, where Georgia Maloney uh, has prevailed with her Brothers of Italy party. Uh, she's in partnership with a couple of other uh, Italian parties and forming a coalition government uh, that is likely to make her the first female prime minister in the history of Italy. Uh, she's being denounced by the New York Times, uh, by CBS, by MSNBC, and by others uh, as being a fascist. They're using that word over and over and over again. Obviously, Italy has a history of fascism, uh, you know, that is, uh, that strains from, you know, the era of Mussolini and, and beyond. Uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, it's something that uh, is, uh, you know, original uh, to Italy in terms of its formation as a term. Uh, but it's also uh, something that seems to, you know, be thrown around quite a bit uh, today in America. And so I think a lot of people have this knee-jerk reaction, uh, you know, when they hear someone call called a fascist, either they, they hate them or they immediately defend them because they assume that they're being smeared. I'm not going to tell you that uh, Georgia Maloney uh, is someone who has never, you know, uh, said anything inappropriate or, or done anything wrong, you know, and frankly, I don't know her well enough to know whether she is a fascist deep in her heart. But what I can tell you is that the media here is bending over backwards to find ways to call her that, despite all of these different factual reasons that you could say it goes in the opposite direction. You know, I'm sure they'd love to say that she was a big fan of Vladimir Putin. In, in fact, she's been supportive of Ukraine from the beginning. Uh, I'm sure that they would say she wants to break away Italy from the European Union. Uh, she's been a supporter of Italy remaining within the European Union. I'm sure that they would say uh, that she's someone who has extreme and, you know, radical ideas when it comes to uh, reforming the way that elections were perhaps sweeping them away. But in fact, she's been a consistent supporter of democratic elections. Uh, all these things are admitted within the New York Times article, which has to stoop to the idea that she's a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings as indicating uh, some kind of a crypto-fascist uh, uh, presence. Of course, you can tune in to Amazon's Rings of Power uh, at, at any time uh, if you are a Prime member. Uh, it's pretty ludicrous to look at, and when you actually look closer at her, what you'll see is that she's very socially conservative and that this has always been the emphasis of her public remarks. Uh, she is, of course, you know, anti-high levels of immigration, which you know many American politicians are as well. Uh, she's a, an opponent of abortion. She believes uh, she's opposed to uh, uh, gay couples adopting uh, in in form in the form of of buying a child out of the womb or you know that kind of of uh, surrogate uh, type of approach. She's someone who basically holds 
the views of an American politician like Rick Santorum, uh, you know, someone who, you know, is in favor, for instance, of uh, massively increasing the levels of support for uh, women who choose to work, uh, to leave work and stay at home and be, be mothers for their children, of encouraging the Italian birth rate, which obviously has been in decline, uh, and, you know, really of defending, you know, from her perspective, the national idea of, an, of uh, made in Italy, of, of you know, uh, that the country should be more uh, self-reliant uh, and that the people there should have stronger families with more support from government. If this is your definition of fascism, then you are an idiot. And it certainly is not something that is out of step, you know, not just uh, with European politics, but with, uh, you know, uh, American politics. It's something that you will find uh, in many corners of the party, and it does not in any way have a, a fascist element to it. And, and we should not concede that. I would encourage you all to look at her speech to the World Congress of Families from 2019. You can find it, the whole thing on YouTube. It's it's about 15 minutes long, where she gives a passionate defense uh, of the family, you know, uh, identifying, for instance, the priorities of, of pushing back against using puber puberty blockers on young kids or, or you know, uh, uh, pushing uh, a uh, elimination of differences between the sexes uh, or uh, a, a continuum of gender identity uh, to uh, toward kids through education and the like, all things that would be perfectly familiar for conservative audiences here at home. And here's the context of what I want you to think about here. There's always this approach where you know, the CNNs of the world, the Jake Tappers of the world, the New York Times of the world, uh, they use these populist politicians overseas uh, to scare Americans. They say, you know, there's this rise of dangerous, you know, populism and the like. And they will always sort of put them all in one bucket, treat them all like they're the same. But the populists in one nation are not necessarily the populists, uh, populists in another nation in terms of their priorities. Populists in Europe versus populists in, you know, say India or, or Asia can be very different. Uh, and, you know, I think that one of the things that, that this sort of globalist approach to talking about these things uh, does is it eliminates all the differences that exist uh, between these different natures of populism and the approach that they uh, actually apply when it comes uh, to governance. You know, someone like Boris Johnson, you know, talked about as a populist, obviously, in his run up uh, to becoming prime minister, uh, would be someone who would be you know, very much within the mainstream of the Democratic Party here in America. Uh, so I think that one of the things you should keep in mind is that they will paint with a broad brush. They will use these kinds of slurs and then they will bring them back and apply them to the American experience, saying, oh, when someone stands up and says, I believe that we should make things in America. I believe that we, uh, you know, that abortion is something that we should fight against. I believe that we ought to have more support for families and and traditional, you know, marriage and uh, you know strong borders uh, and and that type of thing. They will use people overseas to then smear American politicians and say, "Oh, look, they're parroting these fascist lines that they've heard from these people, these extremists uh, overseas." And you should see right through that. You should see it for the gaslighting that it is and will remain. I'm Ben Dominic. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominic Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the front.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.